Hello and welcome to the Turing Podcast. This week we're bringing you an episode all about astrophysics, exoplanets and supernovas, which was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello and welcome to the Turing Podcast. Uh, my name's Effie and I'm here with Ed. Hi and guys. Hi. Uh, how are you doing today, Ed? I'm very good, Effie. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty excited for today's episode. Um, so do you know who we're talking to today? Today, we're chatting with Tarek Allam and Gordon Yip, uh, who are both uh, on placements here at the Alan Turing Institute. Uh, but they're PhD candidates in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at University College London. And so we're going to be talking about astrophysics things with them, specifically supernovas and exoplanets. I think that's probably why I'm so excited today. This sounds really cool. Um, I can't wait to talk to them. Uh, but before we do that, um, do you want to have a quick look at the news? Yeah, I've got an interesting AI-related story that I've picked up in the news this week. Okay. Um, it's quite a relevant one. It's quite one of, um, of global importance, actually. Um, we've got a sort of global problem of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, yeah. Um, it's a problem that's ongoing. We're always having to look for new antibiotics. And some researchers at MIT um, are claiming to have discovered a new antibiotic. Um, but crucially, they've discovered it using AI. Right. So and what's it called? It's called Halicin. Uh, and it was originally a drug that was investigated as a treatment for diabetes. Right. But by training their AI system to uh, spot molecules that prevent bacterial growth um, they've then applied that AI system to uh, a database of, of drugs including this one okay. uh, and it's been identified as something that could have antibiotic uh, antibiotic properties right they've gone on to test it in mice and it it does seem to uh, to uh, kill a, a range of bacteria including some which are resistant to current antibiotics. Okay, I think that's really cool. Um, do you know how they trained, um, you know, how, how they made this discovery exactly? Well, yeah, so they their AI system, it uh, uses what's called a neural network. Uh, and it's been trained specifically to recognize the, uh, the properties of, of, uh, of molecules that uh, prevent growth in bacteria. Right. Um, and then once that uh, neural network had been trained... They can then look at the properties of uh, drugs which are in this particular database. Um, I think it was called the Drug uh, Re Repurposing Hub. Uh, and that's exactly what they've been able to do. They've identified um, those drugs which, are, which don't look like uh, structurally like current antibiotics, mm -hmm. but which, do, which, the, which the AI system predicts uh, should work as antibiotics. Uh, and they validated, as I said, in mice um that it does that it does work in this case okay so is this uh, I, I mean my key question is is this story where did you find it first of all uh well it's been in a couple of places it was in it was in the guardian it was also in in nature 
Um, oh, cool. I believe the, the, the research paper was in Cell, the journal. Good stuff. So um, really pressing question. Is this something that I would find on the Just Says in Mice uh, Twitter feed? <laughs> you might do. Uh, it's at that stage at the moment. It's uh, It's been tested in mice, mm-hmm. but it needs to go through to the next stage, which will be clinical trials in people. Okay. Nonetheless, it's a very exciting discovery because if we can if it's a proof of concept that new drugs can be discovered using AI, then then this might be just the first of many. Great. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we talk often uh, here at the Institute about the future that AI is building. I think this is a classic example of how our health is going to be vastly improved by um, you know, by an intelligence that is artificial. Artificial intelligence, yeah. I think it's called. <laughs> well, it's not something, this new thing. Have you it's not it? something that people might you know think of you think of ai you don't necessarily think ah finding new drugs it's not the True. it's not the th- first thing you think of um but it does seem to be an application that's um that's, that's growing in in the amount of research that's, that's been that's gone into it yeah i mean um so for anybody else that's interested in this kind of stuff if you look on the Turing website we've got lots of impact stories where you can find more information about the research that um, is taking place at the Turing and beyond into how to improve health and medical sciences and it's it's definitely a major focus for us it's a it's a big evolving field um yeah. health, health health data science and ai Great stuff. Well, on that note, um, I think maybe we're ready to talk to Tarek and Gordon. You ready? Let's go for it. Let's go. All right. Welcome, uh, Tarek and Gordon. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Um, so how, how long are you two both into your PhDs now? Um, oh, it's coming up to third year, must be. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, we're both on a, a CDT. Mm-hmm. So the first year is is courses, and then you sort of get into your PhD research. Okay. And so altogether, the program's four years. So I guess we're coming up to our third year now, right? And you're you're both yeah. in the same year then? then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same yeah. cohort, same year. Yeah, yeah. What's what's life like in the department of uh, astronomy? Is it this it's department of astronomy and astrophysics? Yeah, that's yeah, it. that's it. Yeah. So we're sort of. Uh, Currently sat at opposite ends of the building. So Gordon, uh, yeah, you're, you're working on, what was it, planetary? Yeah, because of planets, planets basically outside the solar system. Mm. Okay. That's my domain, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm Exoplanets sort of... Exoplanets and your supernovas. Yeah, supernova. That's, um, that's so my game. which one is better? Oh, <laughs> there's a competition. The yeah. Is there a better <laughs> one? Yeah, is there a better one? Or is, it, is there... Supernovas um, are yeah. a lot bigger. That's <laughs> true. Yes, I, li- I like it. A lot more explosive as well. Yes. Yeah. Whereas exoplanets are, what would you say about exoplanets if if you had to compare the two? Um, well, definitely for starters, we get more funding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got me there because, uh, because people are interested in it. So okay. naturally, we've got more funding. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's fair. That sounds like exoplanets has beat you out with the. It's all about the money. Yeah, Being yeah, smaller, yeah. there's got to be a lot more of them as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Infinite exactly. number of planets out there. Mm. I'm going to kick off with a question about supernovas. Go for it. For you, Tarek. Yeah. So uh, your PhD research looks at the classification of supernova light curves. Mm. Um, But first, let's ask, what is a supernova and why are astrophysicists interested in classifying them? Right. Awesome. So a supernova, you can just think of it as an exploding star. So as a star sort of comes to the end of its life, uh, it goes boom and, uh, and we see a supernova. Now, specific- there's no sound in space so no no it doesn't, doesn't really go boom right <laughs> no exactly being pedantic but yeah yeah no so um if uh 
if you sort of, what we're trying to do, yeah, we're trying to classify the different types of exploding stars. And the one that we're specifically interested in is type 1A um, supernovas. Now, type 1A supernovas occur when you have a star and it accretes some mass. So as in, so it's, it's um, pooling in some mass from a companion um, so and then, another star it's yeah yeah sucked well, in another star it, yeah, it's, su- it's sucking in another star but then it gets to a critical point <clears throat> and when it gets to that critical point it can't sort of support itself under it under its own sort of weight um its mass and then it just implodes and explodes and so we're really keen on identifying these ones because we know well through theory and, and physics the the energy we expect to observe uh, from this explosion and so because it's a a very determined uh energy that we that we expect to observe uh we can use this as what they call standard candles so it's almost like having a if you think of a 100 watt light bulb and i put it in front of your face and you sort of know the distance between that light bulb if i move it to the across the room you can work out the distance of how far i've moved it because the brightness that is given off is still 100 watts um but the well, so the, the luminosity you observe would appear dimmer because I've moved it far away. And so you use this, the same sort of thing here. So we use them as standard candles because we know the energy, we know the light we expect to observe. And so by observing how much dimmer it is uh, can give us a proxy measure for distances in the universe. Is that because the, the supernovas are expected to always... Uh, give out the same amount exactly of, exactly of so energy this, this or is the... yeah same amount of, of energy there's sort of some um hand wavy stuff sort of going on here but uh yeah to it to a sort of like you could say a normalization factor we expect to see a certain amount and by and judging by how much dimmer it is from what we expect you can judge the distance you can ju- yeah exactly exactly and so why it's sort of very interesting is that um as you'd expect it to follow, shall we say, a, a linear relationship. Well, it's actually an inverse square law. So as in, um, you move it twice the distance, the luminosity should decrease by a factor of four, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's four times dynamo yeah. when it's twice as far away. Yeah, exactly. But what was sort of observed is that as you go further and further away, and this also means sort of looking further away in time as well, because so you, you're sort of looking back the further you're looking away, it was observed even dimmer than what we would expect from the relationship of what the equations tell us. And so for that to be the case, there must have been some kind of expansion or, or something to have occurred. Um, and this sort of sparked the whole um, search for dark energy. Some form of energy is driving this expansion. And so if we can find more type 1A supernova at increasing distances slash high redshift, then we can add more data points to our sort of um, to the sort of the graphs that we have and get a better understanding of of what this dark energy might be. It allows us to constrain certain theories. So I'll just drop in right here. I don't deal with the theories. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the I'm the data guy. But um, but yeah, so this is why you, people are, are very interested. Well, if I was to, to try and get you to explain exactly what is dark energy, then oh, that, that's a, that's <laughs> a I'm walking out now. <laughs> Yeah, but, but basically, it's the it's it's what we think is uh, yeah. powering this ex, this expansion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, these objects are dimmer than we think they should be. Yeah, exactly. And so the idea is that you know if we can find more, yeah, more of these type one A supernova, then we can constrain the theories 
of what this dark energy might be um and and yeah answer the answer the big questions yeah that's that's the idea so okay. how, go on you ask a question you've got a question Gordon, <laughs> sorry please. i I got, I got to be driven um yeah. so how often do you get this kind of um type 1a type 1a events yeah so that i won't be able to give you a proper answer for but i do know that um so the issue sort of facing the field at the moment is that we only have about on the order of a thousand um spectroscopically confirmed type 1a supernova so all that means is when you you see the explosion you take a spectrum of the light that you're observing and they'll often use this as the sort of you know this is the historically the way you classify what kind of supernova it is because the spectrum tells you what elements are are present or were present during the explosion and so that tells you exactly okay this is a type 1a this is a type 2 blah 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 um but doing that process is very time consuming and it's very expensive and so um what they're hoping to do now is use a different method so photometric methods so you observe the light coming from the um, explosion and you'll observe it over uh, over different pass bands, so large um, filters. Um, and it, this allows you to sort of collect more light, uh, easier, quicker and, and cheaper than a spectrogram. Um, and so you'll hopefully be able to observe a lot more of them sort of going forward. So, yeah, so I'm not sure what they expect, but we're hoping with upcoming surveys to see many orders of magnitude uh, more supernova. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sort of leads on to my next question, which is, well, at the Turing Podcast, we're interested in how the era of big data is changing science. Um, so when it comes to astronomy, uh, how big does this big data get? <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that. Isn't <laughs> I, I happen to have my notes right here. <laughs> so, so yeah, so in the case of uh, LSST, so the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which has recently been re- renamed uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory, I believe. Um, so, so that is going to be looking for, yeah, using photometric methods, uh, looking at supernova. In fact, actually, it's going to observe the transient sky. So as the sky is changing... Because the idea with the LSST is that it's going to do a full sky map every three nights and then come back and sort of do that again. And so over the period of 10 years, you'll get a movie of the uh, sort of living and breathing universe. And so that um, experiment, although it's not completed yet, is expected to receive 15 terabytes of raw data per night. We're expecting on the order of 10 million transient events alerts per night. Um, and so these kind of data rates... What do you rates, mean by a, a transient event? Uh, okay, so something that changes in time. So in the case of a supernova, its brightness is changing in time. So you'll you'll take a, an image of the sky um, and then you revisit that patch, take another image, and you've seen that the amount of light that you're observing has changed you see that it's, oh, it's all of a sudden it's brighter now. So that would be a, a transient event. It's changed. Um, and so we're expecting, yeah, on the order of 10 million of these per night. Um, okay. So you're, is, you're looking at the night sky every night and yeah. 
you're seeing 10 million differences in the brightness of yeah, stars yeah. and including supernovas. Exactly. That's a exactly. lot of data. It's a lot of data, a lot of data. And so it means that there's a lot of um, processing that needs to sort of go in place. Now, it, so whilst we can still use photometric methods, and, and so, you know, this is the easier and cheaper of, of the way to sort of classify things, you still can't beat a spectrogram. So um, what you would like is in real time, when you've observed an alert, um, is to be able to direct spectroscopic resources to also go look at this event and can you confirm right what supernova is this so there's a lot of work you know being done to do photometric classification but you still can't be a spectroscopic uh, classification how, well, how does the ordinary spectroscopic classification work <laughs> right so uh with a um, spectroscopy you'll you have if you think of your light spectrum you'll just have a bunch of um, bands appearing as if they're missing. And, and these are sort of absorption lines of where different elements are absorbing the light in that mm -hmm. sort of spectrum. Um, and so that is a proxy to tell you what kind of elements are present. Uh, because if you can see that, okay, the absorption line for oxygen is in your spectrogram, you know that, ah, okay, well, oxygen has caused that absorption line. Um, and so the reason why it's so good is because it tells you exactly what elements are present. And we know from different types of explosions um, have and have not certain elements. Yeah. So that tells you straight away. It's like, oh, well, we see that. And that presumably factors into how you classify them. Yes. Based yeah. on exactly. their exactly. elemental composition. Exactly. Based on their, their, their spectrum of light. Yes. Yeah. That that sort of um, I think we can follow on from that by asking Gordon a question, which is uh, how uh, can we use the same sort of thing to determine the uh, the chemical composition of exoplanets when we're looking at them? That's, that's actually a very similar technique that we are using, and I think in astronomy we are sort of using you know other people's technique, other people's technique as well. So yeah, so. In exoplanet, we are looking at... So one of the things that we are looking at is the chemical composition or the atmosphere of the exoplanet. Basically, can you tell that whether there is uh, any clouds on it, any H2O water, CH4 methane, etc., etc. And we do that by actually looking at a particular type of event, which, is, which we call it transit. So for a transit, what is a transit? So imagine that you have a star like our sun, then you have a planet passing in front of it. Then all of a sudden, if you're looking at this event, then the brightness coming out or the light coming out from this system is actually reducing when the planet is crossing in front of the star. And I directly just said, if you look at this event in different filters... So these are sorry. These are basically like sort of eclipses in Eclipse. in their own, yeah, yeah. not our yeah. solar system, but in those in those systems. Yes, that's exactly what is happening. Yeah, and if you look at this kind of eclipses event in different wavelengths, then you can basically capture the molecular absorption feature, and that's how we infer that there might be some kind of water, HCO two, etc., etc. In or there, whatever other compounds might be in the atmosphere of those planets. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, in that process, you don't have any way to gather uh, any specifics. It's all entirely theoretical, based on what you do know. Yes, that 
that's one of the troubles that's always based on what we know about our chemistry and how it behaves in this kind of temperature but then the the problem is that the molecular feature that we usually encounter in the laboratory is always like room temperature or sometimes you may have like 100 kelvin that's the sort of um range okay. like 100 to 500 kelvin but for, Just for our listeners so what's 100 kelvin in celsius that's that so it goes down to 200 minus 250 or something minus like that. 273 yeah, yeah. so yeah yeah, so it's really cold. <laughs> we might get Dan to have that have a look. Oh, our producer says it's it's minus one hundred and seventy three degrees Celsius, so that's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> that's for COK, right? Yeah, yeah. that's almost chilly. as cold as Canada. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then um, sometimes for some in some exoplanet, you may have like a thousand K, thousand five hundred. That's like really really hot, and right. then we don't have anything, an example or any specimen that has this kind of temperature or this kind of molecular So how behavior. do you, um, sorry, how do you account for those discrepancies? What do you do in those instances? Well, you go to the theory and then you just calculate purely from the theory. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm guessing it's because obviously on Earth we don't have those temperatures. So we don't, we don't know exactly what sort of chemistry occurs at those temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the troubles. Our only blueprint is the solar system. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right, so I feel like um, this is a good good opportunity to ask some questions of Gordon. Uh, so, as you've already explained, exoplanets are any planet that exists outside of the solar system as yeah. we currently know it. Yeah. Um, do you have any idea of how many have been discovered these days, or really how fast they're being discovered? So right now we currently have like about four thousand okay. exoplanets being discovered, but with many more um, candidates waiting to be confirmed. Right. Yeah. And how many more? Oh, that's a tricky question. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably uh, these are all um, on sort of nearby solar systems or... or they, sorry. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what constitutes nearby, but I'm, I'm guessing they have to be stars that are relatively close to our solar system. Yeah, in astronomy, nearby is is very very vague. Relative term, yeah. Compared to the to universe, yeah, yeah, everything's very nearby. So actually, most of the exoplanets that we're discovering um, is actually within our Milky Way. Right. You may find some of them in other galaxies, but only a few. I think there are about uh, eight thousand. Or 6,000 waiting to be confirmed. Wow, okay. So really, what you're saying is that we were all misled at a very early age to believe that our solar system (laughs) is just this small number of planets and there are all (laughs) sorts of additions that um, will be included over time. Is that what you're saying? Yes, there will be many, many more. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So um, There won't be any more in our solar system, I don't think. You sure? Yeah. Oh, but I, I don't know if I've, I don't know if we can believe there's that. There's this talk of like finding Planet Nine. I have no idea I have what it is. This. I feel like they're they're sort of everyone's sort of upset about Pluto being demoted. Well, so they that's need what a, I was going to say. This yeah. might be an interesting, fun question for the two of you. Do you have right. Do you have a take on the Pluto controversy and Ooh. and what what other? How big does a planet have to be to be well, to be a planet? Right. And so then... so I'm not a planetary scientist, but I'm going back to the old school days where I was taught that Pluto was a planet. So I'm right. sticking Me by too. that. <laughs> so you both believe that Pluto is a planet? Well, I, well, 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 I'll put it a different uh, way. I don't. Okay. I won't say I believe it's a planet, but I'm going to say it's a planet. 
Okay, all go. right. I think, <laughs> I, think okay. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, according yeah, to exactly. the rules of IAU, it's not a planet. Right? <laughs> yeah. To me, right, it's going official you know, now. Yes. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. I feel really. like, Ed, do you think Pluto's a planet? Well, I'm, I'm not a planetary scientist either. Right. But <laughs> my understanding is that there are, there are other objects that have been discovered in the solar system that are as big or bigger than Pluto. I see. And there's quite a few of them. So that's where the controversy arises from. Yeah. Um, but thinking outside the solar system yeah there's there's about four thousand, roughly we reckon or yeah. things that we can see within our milky way so far that actually strikes me as um not that large of a number because there must be i don't know how many are we talking about millions of stars in the milky way or yeah uh, yeah if you think about you know the number of stars compared to the number of planets you find that well four thousand is basically a very very small number and I think that's basically because we are limited by the technology that we are having. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's not that they aren't out there. It's not it's... that they're not out there. It's actually one of the statistical studies carried out by researchers. And then they say that you have at least one planet per um, stellar system, per solar right. system out there. Um, I feel like this is a really good time to ask, um, how is machine learning supporting your efforts? Can you tell us about the atmosphere of exoplanets and how you're using machine learning to find out more about that okay so basically in the future we will have many more missions um Mm -hmm. coming online into basically into space and then looking at exoplanets and looking at their uh, spectra spectra produced by them um but the problem is you have basically a thousand of them or even more now you can't really look at each one of them and say, oh, it has water, or maybe that one has CO2. So you need some sort of automated tool to actually help you define it. Um, so at UCL, we, what we are trying to do is we are trying to train a new network, something like a CNN, and then um, what we're going to do is we um, use the spectrum, and then we, we ask a new network, okay, from this spectrum, can you help me to predict some kind of, does it have H2O, and how much H2O is there in the in the spectrum? Right, okay. Okay, so this is another sort of classification problem, I suppose? Yeah, both classification and regression, because you want to know about whether it exists or not, and if it exists, can you tell me about how much water okay. is in there? Right, so how how well are we doing these days with making those predictions on the 4,000 or so exoplanets? Uh, and how honest? quickly are we doing it? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's early days. It's the very early days. We yeah. only have about half a spectrum of 30 planets. Okay. And then even those in those 30 planets, we can only say, okay, it has water. Okay, it doesn't have water. Right, okay. That's it. And that's and that's how you're classifying. It's either you have water or you don't, and that's so, it. Sorry, sorry, I, I didn't quite catch that last bit. You were saying something about water. Water, yeah, 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 yeah. You 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 can only say whether that planet has water or not. I see. Yeah. Okay, not how so, much it has, and not how much, and therefore it's not very difficult. Much, to, yeah, oh, okay. you have a huge uncertainty on that. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully your methods will be perfected, and we'll soon know how much water there is on exoplanets and how much carbon and other 
you know, life-giving materials there are on other planets, which leads me to my bonus question for the two of you. It's a fun one. As experts in astrophysics (laughs) and and astronomy. You know when somebody starts with as experts. (laughs) It's a good question. (laughs) What is your opinion on the question of are we alone in the universe? Let's let's go to Tarek first. Going to Tarek first. So I think the statistics make me feel that we're not alone. I feel like it's just there's too many stars and, you know, too many potential planets that that surround these um, stars for there not to be life elsewhere. The key thing, though, is, is there intelligent life out there? So as in, like, we measure, we're saying, okay, you know, is there is there life? But are we saying, is there life like us out there? That is a question I have no idea about. But I feel biologically surely by the statistics of how many stars are out there there's got to be life okay. out there yeah so we're not alone but we probably is it you thinking it's too far for us to reach or for it to ever reach us i'm going to sadly say yes <laughs> just by the distances <laughs> oh, involved um yeah to think that sort of our nearest what is it our nearest star is like 4.6 light years away right um and so the distances involved are just kind of crazy so i feel like at least in our lifetime, we might be lucky. I don't know, um, but it's very unlikely that we'll we'll sort of get any sort of signals back. So I I, I need to be careful of what I say because there's, there's a massive controversy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But my personal belief is uh, that we're not alone. But I'm not expecting a call from ET anytime soon. Okay, mm. well yeah. that's slightly disappointing. Sorry, maybe guys. maybe Gordon's got a different <laughs> Gordon's answer. Yeah, uh, what's your sad, answer? Sadly, I have to agree with Derek. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, that we, I think that there should be life mm. somewhere in the universe. But the problem is the distance is making us like in a long distance. Let's say in a long distance relationship that we <laughs> can't really reach each other. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I, f- I feel like that was partly partly an inspiring answer, partly disappointing. If they, <laughs> if, you know, if they exist, we just can't access them is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let me yeah. ask just a, a tangent question from that. What about maybe not advanced life in terms of human-type mm-hmm. intelligent civilizations, but some form of biochemistry or microbial life? I mean, we haven't found anything yet, right? But... It's still out, it's still possible that like on one of the moons of of uh, Jupiter or certainly in some of these exoplanets that we'll find something eventually. Yeah, I think I think actually there are studies that is suggesting that the the moons of Saturn or Jupiter they might actually have life because they have underground um, ocean in one of the satellites, one of the moons. I'm not sure which. Direct. I'm going to say Europa. Yeah, you, Europa. Yeah. I've, I've heard Europa is the, the icy one with water underneath. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very scientific description. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, I think we'll wrap up there. Um, yeah. Tarek and Gordon, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Um, yep. thank, you thank you indeed. Thank you very much. Um, any any final words? Well, no, blimey, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, uh, we'll direct ET in case you know ET. Is- are yeah, yeah. Let act- me know if he calls. I, I, I want to say I'm sorry. Active on social media? Do you have? Uh, oh yes, yeah. Uh, follow me, uh, Talum Jr. on Twitter and all my sort of social media. And how's that spelled? T A L L A M J R. Almost 
messed up my own name there <laughs> <laughs> on the spot. But um, yeah, on Twitter, GitHub, all, all, all your favorite social media. How Fantastic. about you, Gordon? I'm a little bit um, social media isolated. I don't have a Twitter <laughs> account yet, but I should get one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, well, in the meantime, is there anywhere that we can find your work? Anything that you want to push or plug? Oh, actually, I've got a I've got a GitHub account. That okay. Can follow me. Um, so my GitHub account is is Gordon Yip. So G O R D O N Y I P. Yep. Four two seven. Great. Well, you heard it here first. Thank and you. There, very there is much. actually a, a project that I want to plug. I'm not fully involved, but I just think the technology involves really awesome. And it's dealing with all this, um, the data rates that's coming from LSST. So the project's called Fink, F-I-N-K. Um, Google it, put in some stars and astrophysics and you'll find it. Uh, but yeah, awesome project run by a team in France. So okay. check it out. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Tarek. Thank you, Gordon. And um, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jamminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstree, Tarek Allen, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Listener.